just want you to know that uh, if we've been an encouragement to you, you, I think, way more have been an encouragement to us. And every time we're here, we feel that. We just are very grateful for the way you stand behind us, the way you build us up and affirm us and encourage us. That means a lot. Um, so we thank you. It's been 25 years, hard to believe, in Macedonia. And Michael, you mentioned that plane ride over, and I have to admit, I remember some serious butterflies in my stomach, and it was not from turbulence. It was kind of from some fear, like, Lord, I hope I'm reading you right, because this feels crazy, and I don't think I'm really adequate for this. And uh, we didn't know what was going to happen, you know, is the support going to hold up? Are we going to hold up emotionally, mentally, all of that stuff? And the truth is, we, we weren't adequate. We aren't. None of us are. Uh, but I want to say, after 25 years, I can say from personal experience, God is faithful. Uh, so if any of you young people or not so young people have ever considered possibly serving in missions, uh, don't worry that you're not adequate for that. Uh, God's more than adequate, more than faithful. He has sustained us, provided for us. He's picked us up more than once when we felt like quitting. Uh, God's faithful. God is a big God who's with us. Uh, and he encourages us in so many ways, and you are a huge part of that. So thank you for your support and your encouragement. Today I have entitled my sermon, Behold Our Missional God. And I hope that we are all encouraged together to just behold God. Um, we're living in some upsetting times, actually, even in this country. Uh, one psalm that has encouraged me a lot is Psalm 27, where David is talking about not being afraid. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Even if an army arises against me, even in violent times, I won't be afraid. And then he says, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And I want today to, from our passage in John 17, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Uh, you even have one of the verses up on your wall. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the most important truth is who God is. What's he like? Who is this amazing God that is with us? So we're going to be looking very shortly into that passage. Uh, first, I want to give you a little background about our mission. Uh, our mission started just after uh, World War II. A group of guys who had been in the war thought, you know, there's a lot of people in the Far East that need, need to hear the gospel. And they went to unreached places like Japan and the Philippines and Taiwan. Uh, and they were called the Far East Gospel Crusade. And then later they changed their name to Send International. That's who we're with today. And they worked in the Far East but then in 1989, actually just a couple months after Nadine and I got married, God opened up this amazing, totally unexpected door. Uh, some of you will remember, that's when the Berlin Wall came down, the whole Soviet bloc of communist nations collapsed and basically turned away from communism, and suddenly there was an inroad into these places that had been closed off to the gospel. And so we started praying about possibly serving in that part of the world, and Send International started recruiting people for that part of the world, and we ended up in a former Yugoslav republic called Macedonia. Uh, today it's called North Macedonia. Uh, don't let that confuse you. The borders didn't change. We didn't have to move. 
Uh, that was a political thing. There's different uh, animosities in the region, and the relationship with Greece in particular is kind of touchy. And at Greece's insistence, they changed their name to North Macedonia because part of Greece is called Macedonia, and they argue over who's the real Macedonia. So we don't get into that too much, but just so you know why we're serving in North Macedonia. Um, anyway, Sen's mission statement is to mobilize God's people to engage the unreached in order to establish reproducing churches. That's how we define our mission. And uh, Macedonia is an unreached people group. And there's an ethnic minority of Albanians that's very unreached. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about this place and this culture that we live in to give you a feel for uh, where we are. So uh, it has a rich Christian heritage. And a lot of Christian virtue is still permeated in the culture. It's, it's actually a very nice place to live. It's a warm culture. People are very hospitable. Uh, relationships are very important to Macedonians. I would say more so than in our culture here in America. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, neighbors drink coffee with each other. And a cup of coffee takes at least an hour to drink because you're having a conversation. It might take two hours to drink. You're having a conversation. You're sharing your life with your neighbor. And that's precious to them. Uh, so it's really been a blessing for us to enter into that culture. Sometimes I think we stumbled into that culture and had plenty of uh, faux pas and even times when we were probably offensive to them. And we've learned the beauty of that warm culture. Uh, and it's really a good place to try to share the gospel because people want to talk to you. Um, but uh, those are holdovers, I think, Christian virtues from a very rich Christian past, Christian heritage. Uh, we are about 200 miles northwest of Philippi. That's where the first convert in Europe was back in the first century. Lydia was baptized. And you can actually go to that little town today and see the river where she was baptized. And the gospel spread through that whole region. You know about that from the book of Acts and some of Paul's letters. In fact, he brags about the Macedonian church, that they were the generous ones that were giving to missions and all sorts of things. Well, what happened? Uh, actually, the Slavic tribes moved in a few centuries later, and there was a very interesting time when missionaries were sent from Greece, and there was a guy named Cyril. You've probably heard of the Cyrillic alphabet. The Russians use the Cyrillic alphabet. Well, the language we speak in Macedonia is... Uh, also a Slavic language, and so they use the Cyrillic alphabet. And that is named after a guy named Cyril, who in the ninth century with his brother Metodi, they came into what is now North Macedonia. And they are heroes even today. <clears throat> the Macedonians remember them as the people that created their alphabet and delivered the people from illiteracy. So Cyril and Metodi are patron saints of the country. But really what their mission was, they were kind of like old-time old uh, Wycliffe Bible translators. They came to Macedonia to translate the scriptures into Slavic Macedonian and to Christianize those people, and they succeeded. And as a result, this region had a strong Christian heritage. So why is it unreached today? Well, fast forward about 500 years from Cyril and Methody, and some uninvited guests came in. They were overrun by a Muslim empire, the Ottoman Empire. They showed up a long time ago. Columbus hadn't even discovered America yet. We weren't even around <laughs> um, as a country. 
And the, the Turks stayed 500 years. Imagine that long a time to be under intense pressure to become Muslim. And some, some Macedonians did, but not very many. Uh, most Albanians and other people group in the region became Muslims, and they're, they're still Muslim by tradition today. And uh, Macedonians are pretty proud that they retained their Christian belief. They, they stood firm in, in who God was. Um, and, and there's some conflict now in the region between people who are loyal to, to uh, Islamic heritage and loyal to a Eastern Orthodox Christian heritage. But 500 years, imagine. It wasn't until the turn of the 20th century, 1902, three, somewhere in here, where the Macedonians and the Bulgarians and some of these people groups were able to push the Turks out and gain their freedom. Uh, and then they entered into a really nice period where there were a couple of world wars. Uh, and after World War II, they found themselves under another regime, and that was a communist regime, Yugoslavia. Uh, Yugoslavia was actually sort of communism light. They wouldn't throw you in prison for being a believer, but you might lose your job. You'd certainly be mocked and looked down at as uneducated, simpleton, you know, the religion is the opiate of the people kind of mentality. And that was over four decades of that. And that has left a huge impact on the culture. Uh, they still celebrate their traditional religious holidays. If you're a Muslim, you actually keep the fast, or at least pretend to keep the fast, and you have a holiday at the end of the fast where you socialize. Um, if you're a Christian, you'll celebrate Easter and Christmas and some saints' days, but you're pretty vague on what your faith is. Uh, on Easter morning, it's a beautiful thing. You, in our neighborhood, you can go around to any one of my neighbors and greet them with, Christ is risen, and they'll answer, he is risen indeed. And that's a beautiful thing. But I always pursue another conversation after that. Tell me about your hope of eternal life. And more often than not, they'll say, well, we don't believe in that. And, and if you pursue that, you realize that they have a very vague belief in some kind of a higher power. And the Muslims sort of have a vague belief. They'll say, God is one. And Macedonians will say, yeah, God is one. We, it's probably like the Muslims. God is one. It's very vague. And, and their favorite expression is to say, well, there must be some higher power. They don't have a clear picture of God. And sometimes I think the Macedonians, in an attempt to not offend their, the Muslims that they have to live with, are purposely saying, well, God is one, and it's all, it, it's all good. Everybody's got a God. That's why they're unreached. That's why they don't know who the real God is. And we're there to try to expose them to the scriptures and let them behold God for who he is. So let's do that together. Um, when we talk about our mission, our mission to take the gospel to the nations and to establish churches, we need to remember that it's ultimately God's mission. It's not my mission or your mission or our mission. God has a mission and he defines the mission, and it's deeply rooted in who he is. And if you want to know who somebody is, one of the great things you can do is listen to them pray. Um, or when you pray with friends, and you hear them pray for you, that draws you closer to them, doesn't it? Uh, I've actually got a few friends here today that came out to encourage me, and they have been praying for me and with me for over 35 years. Guys in my high school, college 
time that we learned to pray together. And that really bonded us for life as friends. So some of you young guys and girls, if you haven't got friends yet that you can pray with, honestly and openly, you seek that out. You become that friend to somebody. That's made a huge impact in my life. Well, today in our passage, we're going to listen to the Son of God pray to his Father. And he's praying a lot of the time for you and me. And I hope that that will give us a, a real window into who God is and appreciation. So would you stand with me as we read God's word? It's a little longer passage this morning that we're going to be reading. So uh, let's look at what Jesus prays to his father. He's just finished several chapters of telling them about his impending death and resurrection. And the disciples are confused and scared and don't get it. And here's how he prays. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Would you pray with me before, we're, before you take a seat? Heavenly Father, what a, what a blessing it is to worship you together with the body of Christ. We rejoice and give you thanks for giving us your Son and sending your Holy Spirit to live within us. Thank you that you give us a part in your mission to reach a lost world. I pray that this morning we turn our eyes to you, we behold you in all your beauty, and that you would speak to us. We ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Be seated. We talked about our mission as Send International. We have a mission to mobilize God's people, to engage the unreached, to establish uh, reproducing churches. It's great to define our mission, but God has a mission, and God's mission comes through really clearly in this prayer. We see that God knows what he's doing. We see it right in the first verse. God is on a mission. Father, the hour has come. Jesus is well aware that this is the key moment in all of history. The hour has come in the mission that he's been sent on. He's got a clear endpoint ahead of time too, ahead of, ahead of him too. Not just this hour, but he knows about the end of history. John 14, he tells his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. And then he goes on to say, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back, take you to be where I am, that you may be with me there. He has an end game in mind. Uh, with all the turbulence in the world, I've been challenged to just read a little more of some of the end times prophecies of, of the scriptures, not to try to necessarily figure out everything in the newspaper, but just to, to have that reassurance that God has a plan. God's mission's not gonna fail. There's one verse that jumped out to, to me in Revelation chapter nine. There's all these judgments coming across the world as the trumpet, the different trumpets sound. And after one of them sounds, there's a voice that says, that refers to these four angels that were specifically prepared for this very moment in history. It says, these four angels were prepared for the, the hour and the day and the month and the year to carry out the specific judgment that was their assignment. God has a mission, and he knows what he's doing. And it certainly 
uh, overrules our mission if there's a conflict between the two. <laughs> We're to join his mission. Father, the hour has come, a very significant hour that would be glorious, even though it would be torturous for Jesus himself. Looking ahead at verse 18, we see that God's mission is something that he shares with us, delegates to his followers. Jesus says in his prayer, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. We're part of his mission, his mission. Back a few verses in 13, we see that his mission takes place in a hostile territory. We're in a hostile world. I don't think I have to convince you of that uh, in the current situations that we're seeing. But Jesus says, now I come to you, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves, even though they're in a hostile world. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He doesn't pray for God to take us out of the world, but to take care of us in this world, to keep us from the evil one. God's mission takes place in the face of hostility. There are many who will respond to the gospel. Some will respond in hostility. <laughs> Just had a prayer request this week um, from a friend of mine who has ministered in Africa for many years. And uh, to make a long story short, he asked me to pray for a man who was taken hostage this week by Muslim extremists who are carrying out a jihad. There's a tribe in Western Africa where the gospel is finally taking root and spreading in the last decade or so after years of faithful sowing by missionaries with no response. But now they're under attack. And this particular man has won many to Christ. He has a wife and children, and he was abducted just a few days ago. And uh, I won't even share names and places uh, just because it's a sensitive uh, situation. But uh, those are the kinds of things that are happening throughout history and even in our current world. Uh, so if you think of that brother in the coming days, pray for him, for God to keep him from the evil one and for God to accomplish his purpose through this dark situation. So God's mission... Uh, overrules ours. We have our plans, but we need to hold them loosely and be aware that God has the real plan. So we need to be ready to flex with his plan. Um, five years ago, when we were sent out for this previous term in 2015, we had a plan. We were going to uh, transition out of the church, the small church that we had been planting and leading for a number of years, and we were going to look for a home in a particular new town and start a new Macedonian church there. But God had another plan. Uh, we landed and we had been hearing rumors of refugees coming out of Syria and we landed in October 2015 and my supervisor says to me, we have an unprecedented opportunity that God has brought into our lap and would you be willing to lead a ministry to somehow get the gospel and reach out to these people as they come streaming through our land. Hundreds of thousands of refugees from the Middle East and even from further uh, were streaming through Macedonia from 2000, late 2015 to 
partway through 2017, about a two-year window. And we didn't know what to do. <laughs> I don't speak Arabic or Farsi or any of these other languages that people had. Uh, but we decided that God would have us reach out and show the love of Christ and offer what we could to these people in Jesus' name somehow. And so we started a ministry. I think there's a couple pictures I, that we might want to skip to. Uh, let's see. <laughs> skip ahead a couple pictures if you're whoever's at the picture. Yeah, there we go. This is a scene, a winter scene on the northern border between Macedonia and Serbia. And we would wait there. Uh, sometimes we'd have advance warning as when the train is coming. But we would take van loads full of food. And at first we didn't know what to take, but we eventually realized that our two best things were bananas and hard-boiled eggs. Uh, and we would take van loads of this stuff up when we knew a train was coming. Uh, and we had a little booth to kind of protect us from the masses as we handed them out. And the little booth, I want to say, was about, I don't know, a fourth the size of the stage. <laughs> Maybe like your little information booth in the lobby. Uh, it wasn't very big. I mean, four or five of us could stuff ourselves in there to hand out uh, these things. We had, we had Russian tea or Turkish tea, however you want to call it, that these, these cultures enjoyed. And this is what we had to offer these people. And the train would show up, and a thousand people would get off the train. And we're in our little booth, you know. And it was chaos. And not many of them spoke English. They knew, my friend, my friend, five, five, ten, ten. That was their English level, most of them. Uh, but of course, there's a few that knew some English. And uh, so we would show the love of Christ to them as best we could. Uh, and one thing we learned quickly about Muslims is they'll never refuse an offer to pray for them or pray with them. So we started doing that, and those that could understand our English. Um, a very creative missionary got the idea to um, make little SD memory cards for cell phones, because all these people had cell phones. And he put on this memory card the Bible and the Jesus film in every relevant language for the situation. And so we got a bunch of these things, and we handed those out to people. We were sowing seeds, showing love to people. Uh, it was chaotic. It was sometimes an adrenaline rush. Uh, at one point, I got the bright idea to hand out bananas outside our little protection booth, and I almost got trampled. Uh, but it was chaotic. These were people that were hurting. Um, maybe we look at the next picture. Can you, can you skip that forward? Yeah, that's... Oh, I'm sorry, back one. Th that gives you a picture of our booth. There's Nadine handing out tea to a new arrival train. Uh, but yeah, let's get the picture of that little guy. Um, these people had families, and God gave us the opportunity to show love to whole families. Uh, and this was our ministry for two years. We, weren't, we were church planning kind of on the side with our current church, but that was very part-time. And we were, this was just an overwhelming um, ministry that the Lord dumped in our lap and told us, this is what you, I have for you for these two years. And we sowed a lot of seeds. There was a time when the, when the borders sh shut and all of a sudden this little way station became a camp and we got to know people over a longer period of time instead of just handing them food as they passed through. And we had a chance to befriend people and share the gospel with some of them. Uh, 
And we know that there's been really a, a big harvest on the other side in Germany and other places in Western Europe. I have friends that work up there. Um, and they've told of people coming to Christ. And God gave us a small part in sowing the seed on the way up there. God has a mission. God knows what he's doing. God knew about the Syria-Iraq crisis before it ever happened. And he accomplished great things through it. So our God does have a mission, and he's, uh, he's a lot sharper than we are at, yeah. at designing a mission and carrying it out. Uh, so we see that in, in Christ's prayer. But I want to go on to a second point, and that is that God's mission is deeply rooted in who he is. It flows out of who he is. So who is he? Well, in this prayer, the first very simple observation we need to see is that it's a son praying to his father. God reveals himself as a father who has a son, as an eternal father who has an eternal son, a father who loves his son. They experience eternal, joyful fellowship together. Look at verse uh, 24. The beginning, Jesus is praying for us that we might be with him where he is and see his glory. That's an amazing prayer. We'll, get, we'll come back to that. But the very end of verse 24, he says to his father, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Turn back to verse 5. Jesus prays, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Eternal, joyful, amazing, glorious fellowship from before time began, which is hard for us to conceive because we're so locked into time. But that's what Jesus had with his Father. If you ever wonder, what was God doing before he created the world? He was loving his Son, rejoicing and delighting in each other, Something else I want to emphasize about their relationship, there is complete trust and cooperation between them. Look at verse 2. You gave him authority over all flesh, Jesus says of himself. You gave the Son authority over all flesh. To all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. The Father is delegating this authority to, to the Son. They share this authority. Skip to verse 4 briefly. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. The Father gives the Son work. The Son carries it out. They work together. They trust each other. Sometimes that's hard for us people to do, to trust each other enough to cooperate and share responsibility and share authority and share power. A guy named Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Speed of Trust, for business people saying, you know, if you just learn to trust each other, you can actually do business a lot more efficiently and you can skip over a lot of time-consuming hassle of documents and promises and sign this and sign that and all these agreements, you know, because you don't trust each other. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we'll get to, they don't have that problem. They trust each other. There's complete harmony. It's a beautiful thing. 
Now, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here in John 17, but he's mentioned in Jesus' speech uh, leading up to John 17, a key verse in John 15, 26, he says, Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, together from all eternity, they share the same name. Jesus talks in his prayer here, you gave me your name. I, I manifested your name that you gave to me. Keep these disciples in your name that you have given me. And when he sends them out in Matthew 28, he tells them to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A single name and a triune God. Three divine persons, distinct but completely united in this beautiful fellowship from all eternity. That's who our God is. And it's this triune God and him alone that is the source of eternal life, of, of any kind of life, real life. And Jesus says in verse three, John 17, three, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's one true God, and it's the triune God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father sent the Son on a mission to save us. But what are we saved to? We are saved to enter into their life, to enter into their fellowship. Sometimes we joke about heaven, or we don't know how to talk about heaven. Even Michael was kind of joking a couple weeks ago about heaven. What, what is heaven? Is, is heaven just, you can eat whatever you want? Is it ice cream all the time, baseball? I mean, you know, heaven is being drawn into the life of the Trinity. I read a book this year called The Life, life in the Trinity. Powerful book by Donald Fairbairn. We are saved in that we are brought into their fellowship, into their life, to share the fellowship that's been going on long before we existed. John describes it in another place in his letter. I'd like to read that to you in 1 John chapter 1. He talks about real life being the fellowship that we have with God, entering into his fellowship. 1 John 1, starting from the first verse. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, that's Jesus himself, right? And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Amen? Amen? We have fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. That's life. That's security, no matter what's happening in our world. And that was God's mission. Jonathan Edwards described God as a fountain that just is brimming with joy and life and overflows to include others. 
And that's his mission, to overflow into our lives. Maybe sometimes the Trinity to us is too familiar as a word or as a doctrine. Or maybe it's a little frightening because someone that doesn't believe might ask you to prove it or explain it or come up with a new analogy that makes it all clear. Uh, but we don't need to shy away. We actually need to embrace this beautiful truth about our God that he is triune. One way to see how important this is and how beautiful it is is to consider the alternative. What if he wasn't a trinity? What if he's just a singular, solitary, solo, divine person up there? That was a question that raised by a guy named, a pastor named Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. That's a short, easy read I would recommend to you. It's on Amazon, Delighting in the Trinity. He says, what if God was a solitary, individual God? Well, first of all, he couldn't really be love, at least not in his essential nature, right? The Bible says, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But to be, to be love or to love requires that another person exists. So God really couldn't be love if he's all by himself. He could certainly be the creator, the almighty, the powerful, and he could create people to be what? Maybe his servants, his slaves. But to be love requires the presence of another. God could not be a father if he didn't have a son. But God reveals himself to a father as a father, a perfect father. Now, if God was all by himself for all eternity and then created us so that he could have somebody to love. That makes him dependent on us, kind of needy. Maybe I'll create a world so I can experiment and try out this love concept, if he would even have that concept. Um, without us, he wouldn't be able to experience love if he was a singular God. In fact, there was a controversy about that. 300 years after Christ ascended into heaven, a guy named Arius in the 4th century, early 4th century, made a, a striking statement. He said, there was a time when the Son was not. God created him. The Father created him. It was a major heresy. But it was a major controversy. But if that was the way it was, God was all by himself for all of eternity then you would tend to think that his desire for glory and his receiving of worship is sort of self-absorbed and egotistical. In fact, that was an objection that a young Macedonian friend of mine made many years ago. He was an agnostic philosophy student, and he just said to me, Andy, you know, isn't that kind of arrogant of God to want to be worshipped and have us you know, say nice things about him all the time? Um, and it, it kind of caught me off guard, and I think I answered something like, well, you know, God's awesome. He's worth it. He's worthy. Sort of like, you know, a great sports player is worth all your cheering. And I suppose that's sort of true. But uh, a better answer that I would give him now would be to point him to the Trinity and how beautiful it is that God is not a solitary God just basking in everybody's praises. God is 
a community of three divine persons and they share their glory. They share their glory. The Father said at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In Jesus' prayer back in John 17, in the fifth verse, he says, he asked his Father to glorify him, but together with himself. Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. It's a shared glory. It's no, no one of them is hogging the glory or wanting to get more of it for themselves. Each one delights to glorify the other. Each one loves the others. They're very much team players. <laughs> and isn't that a beautiful thing when somebody's a team player and gives the glory to somebody else? Don't we find it repulsive when we hear a sports interview and all they say is, well, I've been training for years and I did this and I got these big muscles that helped me do that and, and I'm just glad I won again. And you just want to turn off the TV. But if somebody says, you know, I'm thankful to the people that have invested in me and my teammates really supported me and we, you know, we came together and it's a lot more palatable, isn't it? Our God is like that. He he loves to share his glory among himself. It's a beautiful thing. It's a joyful thing. Jesus can even pray, as he does in verse 13, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy. My joy, Jesus says, made full in themselves. God is full of joy. He's just enjoying himself. Before we were created, he was not this lonely solitary God that needed us to cheer him up. He was full of joy. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, emphasized God is the happiest being in existence. He's just joyful. He's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship from all eternity. Thankfully, Arius wasn't the only theologian around in the fourth century. There was a guy named Athanasius. If you haven't heard of him or haven't read him, I strongly encourage you to read some of his works. Uh, he has a short work called On the Incarnation. I think you can get it on Amazon, on Kindle for like a dollar. It's only about 85 pages. Uh, you'll come across some King James English probably, but it's just a rich work about how amazing that is that God the Son became a man. He has another work called Against Arius, where he speaks up against Arius and he strongly objects to this statement that there was a time when the sun didn't exist and that God is somehow a solo God. And he said that we must start with Jesus Christ, the Son, who reveals God as a Father. If God is a Father, then he must be relational and life-giving. And that is the sort of God we could love. We do start with Jesus Christ, who reveals God. We don't start with philosophy. Aristotle tried to say, well, the universe is eternal and God somehow loved the universe. Now, that was his attempt to try to figure life out. But God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1, it says, the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And at the beginning of John's gospel, turn back 17 chapters from where you are. We know some of these verses by heart. Don't we? The first verse, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. 
And it says in John 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here's the verse I want to emphasize that I think sometimes we, is not as familiar. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Where was the Son of God for all eternity? He was in the bosom of his Father. That's an incredible picture. It's like an eternal hug. That's a picture of the relationship of the Trinity. And that's the basis of God's mission. His mission is relational just as he is relational. It's about sharing this fellowship that he's been basking in and enjoying since before the world began. It's relational. It's through relationships. I said Macedonia is a, is a culture that values relationships. That's a beautiful thing. God values relationships. First and foremost, his relationship among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But relationship, he's extended to us to welcome us into that fellowship. And Christ's church is the vehicle. We're his hands and feet to spread that goodness, to spread that fellowship, to spread that love. Look briefly at verses 20 to 23 again. Christ prays for his church to be united so that the world will believe. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that... The world may believe that you sent me. Our unity is the key to God's mission. The world to see us loving each other is going to have a huge impact on God's mission. We Protestants in particular have a nasty habit of dividing, splitting. Uh, Sometimes it's kind of justified. There's really doctrinal issues at stake. Sometimes it's over personality clashes or, or different visions of you know, what the church should look like. Um, But Christ longs for us to be united. And he longs for us all to be in his glorious presence. That's verse 24 again. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. He wants all of us together to be in his presence, enjoying the fellowship of the Trinity together. So it makes sense that we don't want to come in there all arguing and grumpy with each other and mess up God's perfect fellowship. Not that we could. But he longs for us to be united. He makes his name known to his followers so that God's love for his son may be in us and the son himself to be in us. Look at verse 26, kind of the crowning, the crowning goal of God's mission. Back, starting in verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known. Why? So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This eternal love 
that has been among them is supposed to be in us. Sometimes we're tempted to hop from church to church to try to find one that suits us better. We get our feathers ruffled. Uh, we've had people in our little church in Macedonia that have just left the church because they got hurt, they got offended. Um, I know there's times when it's perhaps appropriate to move to another church, but God has put us in a body really to learn to love. And that means learning to forgive when someone is unthoughtful of you. It means learning to receive forgiveness, to ask for forgiveness. Uh, that's part of our Christian life journey and growth. We're called to stay in the church, to minister through the church. Um, just tell you one brief story of a relationship that God gave us a couple years ago with this family that uh, he brought into our little church. Their daughter was in college and uh, Campus Crusade is on the campuses in Skopje. And she heard about the gospel. She actually came to know the Lord but didn't have a church. And one of the young ladies in our church met her downtown at a, ran into her at a, at an ice cream parlor and discovered that they, she lives near our church and invited her. And so this young gal came and was very enthused. But as often happens in Macedonia, when a young person uh, wants to come to an evangelical church, the parents uh, will get a little uptight because we're considered a cult. So sometimes they'll forbid their child to come or they'll give them a lot of grief, uh, and that's a real issue. In this particular case, thankfully, the dad decided to come with his daughter after a few weeks and kind of just take a look around and see what's going on. <laughs> and uh, so our church body had an opportunity to meet him, and they warmly welcomed him. And he saw that we sing praises together to God, and we pray for each other, and we hug each other, and we open God's word, and he was very pleasantly surprised. And uh, so he invited Nadine and me and another uh, believer to his home to meet his wife because she was a little more skittish. And we spent an evening in their home and she apparently realized we weren't really all that scary and uh, we became friends. And uh, a few weeks later, we had a little summer English, conversational English class outreach and they came every night for three weeks, four nights a week. And by the end of that month, we felt like fast friends, old friends. And they've been in our church ever since. And they've opened their home and we've gone and taught them like a seeker's Bible study, just an evangelistic gospel Bible study for a year or so. Um, and that's just a relationship that the Lord dumped in our lap. And they saw in our church love and unity that was attractive. And our, our church is not perfect. We, we have our moments when we, you know, are disappointed in ourselves because, you know, there's conflict. But this family saw the love of Christ in our little church of 20 people, and now they're part of us. In fact, I was just on a little FaceTime with him for a minute last night. He, the father, he was uh, actually in the hospital for um, some sickness, and um, so I was talking to him and uh, just telling him I'm preaching this morning. He says, greet those people for us. Greet the brothers and sisters in California for us and thank them. You know, he considers himself part of the body of Christ. That's God's mission, to share that fellowship through his body, through Christ's body, the church. That's what we are about. That's what the Christian life is about. There is no salvation other than 
life in the triune God. That's what life is. That's the only life he has to give us. That's why Christ is the only way. He became a man so that we could be joined to him in our humanity. But he's also God and he joins us to God. And we have life in him. May we learn to behold that beauty and just keep that before us. May it be an encouragement to us when we're stressed or down or afraid, maybe preoccupied with our own problems and losing sight of even the mission that God may have for us. May we, may we be encouraged by who he is. Let me close in prayer, but first I want to speak this blessing over all of us that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 13. 14. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Pray with me. Our loving Heavenly Father, we rejoice today in your love, your love shown to us in the giving of your Son your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and poured out in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. May we behold your beauty each day. May you encourage us as we behold you, Lord. May you strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith so that we be rooted and grounded in your love. We want to be filled up to all the fullness of the triune God.